ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. So happy new year to all our uh, good listeners of the Books of the Year podcast. Uh, we'll try and do this as regularly as possible, but you never know. It all, uh, and the good news is that Matt is now plugged into his son's laptop, which means that whilst yeah. his son is still at home, uh, well, it might, things might be okay. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's only going to be for the next, like, six days. So unless we – well, we don't plan to be doing any recordings between now and and the end of this week. In which case, it will be back to my old laptop, uh, which I abandoned uh, after about 10 minutes of trying to make it work this morning. And uh, so, yeah, so we're back onto my son's laptop. He is overjoyed to be without his laptop for, uh, for uh, the next uh, hour and a half. He's asleep, man. Come on. you No chance of him actually being <laughs> physically up. Is that because we're recording at like 11 o'clock in the morning? Um, yes. I, in, in the messages that we got, there was one. Thank you very much. If you want to uh, tweet us, uh, we're at Books of the Year. If you want to email us, Books of the Year at Yahoo.com. Um, and Claire Blewett. Hello, Claire. Mm. Please interview Richard Osman for your podcast. Both his books are terrific, and I would love to hear him answer your Q&A session. P.S. Never stop the podcast. Mm. However few there may be, they bring joy. Well, Claire, first of all, thank you very much, Steve, for listening. Secondly, check our interview with Richard Osman, um, where you will <laughs> <Yes>. find him <laughs> answering about the first book anyway, and that'll be where he answers the Q&A. So, I mean, there are many people that we've missed, but we didn't miss him, did we? No, no, we didn't. And he's, uh, that, I mean, that both books I've read, and they're both superb. Uh, so funny and and great um, Christmas books as well, which is, I mean, part of the reason why they've been, I think they've been Sunday Times number one since, well, s- since they came out, both of them, superb. Uh, Paul Emerson uh, emails, um, sir, books of the year at yahoo.com. Simon and Matt, first of all, I'm pleased you're back. I have been worried sick. Secondly, could I add an idea for the Q&A part of the podcast? I'd be interested to know how many books your authors, and this includes yourselves, believe they read per week or per month or per year approximately. Reading speed interests me. Seriously happy to see you back. Miss this amazing show. Keep it up, please. Regards, Paul Emerson. So what do you think your rate is? Well, it kind of depends. I mean, it's gone down a lot, I would say. Um, I used to read a lot more, I think. But back in the day, when I was doing five live, five days a week, we had, and we... Mm -hmm spoke to two new authors every single week there were 
it was book after book after book after book after book. And then I agreed to be a judge at the Costas, you know, all those kind of things. And then again, book after book after book after book. And, they, you know, and, the, and the pile by the side of your bed uh, just overflows. Also, the, the other thing to answer Paul's question is I rarely finish a book because um, I, not, I get like two-thirds of the way through and then the next book arrives, so I have to start that. Uh, and if you're doing an interview, I mean, I've actually I finished Joe Browning Rose book. Hopefully, Joe's going to be joining us. Of course, yeah. She's not here at the moment. Um, uh, and I and I finished that, but because normally I think, well, to do I don't know. I'm not usually reading for pleasure, which is an unfortunate thing. I'm usually reading for work. So I'm reading, thinking, uh, how do we do the interview? What are the key things to get over? Um, what's what's the style? Uh, what are we getting at? Who are the key characters, uh, and so on. So I'm I'm just reading from a slightly different point of view. But I would think I don't know, four a month or something. What about you? You read you read like you, yeah. You like you read four books in one train journey. Well, I I read uh, again. It depends on the time of year. So because um, I'm involved in the William Hill um, Sports Book of the Year Award. The busy time there is around about, I'd say, June, July, August. In the summer, I am easily getting through 10 books a week, easily. Um, but rest of the year, like at the moment, I'd say probably one book a week. Um, and, and and to be honest, at the moment, I mean, obviously, the, the books that we do on this podcast, I want to read those books. We wouldn't be getting them on if we didn't want to read them. But um, the other books I'm reading... Um, I'm reading because I want to. So I read the uh, the Ian Rankin book uh, over Christmas, demolished that in like two days. It's so good because obviously it's Ian Rankin. And uh, there's another book that I'm about to start called Aftermath, which was in the running for the Bailey Gifford uh, nonfiction prize. Um, so I'll read those both for pleasure. But um, at this time of year, it tends to just be, yeah, just perhaps one book a week. Um, but in the summer, it gets really, really hectic. Interesting to ask... Um, our authors that as well so maybe that is a good question to add to the q and Paul. Yeah. thank you very much uh liz uh emails to say or is this a tweet i think don't know currently reading the fabulous recently published taste by stanley tucci he'd be a brilliant guest might even mix you a cocktail i've heard very very good things um about that he's it's an extraordinary book and he's he's a terrific actor uh, so that's a very good idea people have been you must have interviewed stanley tucci suggestions do you know, I don't think I have, actually. I might stand corrected, but I don't think I have interviewed Stanley Tucci. I think he's a very memorable interviewee, and I think even I would have remembered. So I, I don't think I have, but that, that is a very good suggestion. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've had quite a few um, uh, suggestions for other books or other authors we could feature. Uh, Off Target by Eve Smith. Sue Hayward says, spine-tingling, near-future, speculative fiction with beautifully described relationships. Um, Wins and Not, Colin Udall says, thoroughly enjoyed that one. And um, S.J. Bennett's Her Majesty Investigates a Three-Dog Problem. Uh, Simon Midgley nominates that one. It's, it's always good, bluntly, to just hear of books that aren't currently on my radar that people think I should be reading. So I'm delighted to say we've been joined for our first uh, book club podcast of the year by Joe Browning Rowe. A Terrible Kindness is her novel. It's her debut novel. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Had a few technological glitches just a minute ago, so I'm a little bit heart racy, but I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I should say, 
full disclosure that uh, Joe and I have known each other for a very long time. And in the early days of Five Live, so we're talking about 2001, 2002, 2003, just when we'd started uh, talking to uh, two authors a week, I would hassle Joe to get on with this book that she was writing so that I could interview her, so I could have a word with the producer, say, make sure we interview Joe Browning Road because this book is going to be great. Anyway, this, this is literally two decades ago. Thank you. And then, so then I left Five Live and I thought, okay, well, that's that done. So, so then we started the book club at Radio 2 and then there was all that fuss and bother back in 2018. And I thought, okay, so here comes the books, books podcast. And now at last, <laughs> I'm delighted to say I can interview Joe for her debut novel. So that's the preamble. This is, it's always slightly unusual when you interview a mate. So Matt, who doesn't know you, he'll be chipping in from the other point of view from someone who hasn't got a clue who you okay. are at all. But yes. will, be, will be incisive. Take us... Take us, um, well, actually, why don't we start with it? There's a reader's note in the copy that I've got. I don't know if that's going to be in the final edition. There is a note to the reader about how you spent the first 12 years of your life in the grounds of a crematorium. Yeah. Can you, so can, which is relevant, obviously, to the story that we're going to tell here. Can you just explain what that kind of reader's note is all about? Um, well, the really honest answer is that when I first gave my bio to um, Faber, they said, can you make it a bit more interesting? And um, and the first thing that came to mind <laughs> was the fact that I'd grown up in a crematorium, just because, you know, not many people have. And they were immediately very interested and people have been very interested ever since, really. So, of course, to me, it was a completely normal experience. I was there from when I was one. And before I was one, from naught to from naught to twelve months, I lived in a cemetery. So you know, so and then it was in a crematorium, and it was just it was home. Um, but it was unusual, and I was exposed to the undertaking services. I was exposed to um, scattered ashes, um, and it was very normal to me. And so I think when I when I found out about this story, which you might want to ask more about, but the, this story about the embalmers at Abervan, there was a very natural sort of part of me that just leaned into that and was interested in it in a way I don't think other people might have been um that I was I had an I had an innate respect for the people who did this sort of work and an image in my mind already of their their sort of their sense of duty um and so on and so so I think that it is relevant um to this current novel mm. yes and, and what was it that you learned because uh, obviously the Abervan story people will be familiar with but what was it as you put in your note decades later when you learnt about the embalmer's role what was it that you learnt then that made you think this is what I have to be writing about um well I I found out that um you know when when Abervan happened um a call was sent out to all the embalmers of Great Britain because you know and it's one of these things you, it's difficult to talk about because it is so visceral and it's so unpleasant but because the school had been covered with this tar and this slurry the bodies were covered in it and the bodies needed to be identified um for they needed to be identified for the for the parents they needed to be prepared to be to be buried and so these it was just the heroicism really of these men who got in the car they in their cars and drove through the night and then just worked initially without hot water or electricity to get these bodies presented um, in the way to to um, help these parents who are obviously in enormous distress, but to do it in a way that that helped them, and I just thought this is amazing. This is just such heroic kindness. Um, I wanted to know more. 
So the terrible kindness of the title we learned very early in, uh, in the book is specifically referring to uh, the work that the embalmers are doing. Have it, so having introduced us to that, mm-hmm. Joe, can you tell us about um, our central character, William L- Lavery? Can yeah. you explain who he is and where he fits in the yeah. story? Yeah, so... So the story is all about William. It's not all about Abervan. It's about a young man who's just freshly qualified as an embalmer. He's the youngest in the country. He's done exceptionally well in the training. He's just graduated. And he's at a dinner dance to celebrate this at the the embalmer's um, local chapter dinner dance. And the call comes through from Abervan and he decides to go. And so the, the book, begins and ends with Abervan, but in between the 17 years of this man's life. So he's a a boy chorister in Cambridge, then he trains as an embalmer in London, and then after the disaster, he has post-traumatic stress disorder, um, undiagnosed, and and his marriage is in trouble. And so he goes back to Cambridge and reconnects with his musical roots, helps with a choir for the homeless, which really sort of starts his healing and eventually facilitates him going back to Abervan again. Just explain the relevance and the importance when you're constructing the character of William about his life as a chorister and why you thought it was those two parts of his life that were going to work very well as a character. Well, I think um, I think what was in my mind was, um, having spoken to these embalmers who had gone originally, was that when people go into these situations, they don't go as blank canvases, they go with their stuff. With that for, for good and bad. And so um, the idea of, of William was that he, he went as a really able, competent person who had trauma in his life that he was carrying that he hadn't dealt with. And so um, I, I think I, I, I can't remember the moment when I decided I wanted him to be a boy chorister, but I, I do like going to hear the choristers sing in Cambridge where I've lived for many years. And this idea of, of, of something in the middle of what he loves more than anything, which is to sing, something going really badly wrong that meant he didn't he didn't feel he could ever let that part of his life be healthy and full again and he had sort of cut it off. Um, and and so then going to Abervan with that baggage, um, it's sort of, it's the dual thing of it, of it traumatising him, but it also being the key to him facing up to his own loss. Um, but it just seemed as I carried on writing that this was working well, having this music thread that went through in particular pieces of music. But it wasn't in my in my mind at the outset. It's something that happened as I was writing. Uh, this is an extraordinary book, um, Joe, and um, I, I, I absolutely tore through it. And it has the most extraordinary opening section. And I know, so um, I think me and Simon were reading this around about the same time and um, something happens at the end of the first section that both of us were completely sideswiped by, had no idea was coming. But the the, the main premise that you've already um, talked about with William being at this this, uh, black tie dinner and Abafan has happened and he's summoned to um, to, to Aberfan to be able to help out, and uh, including including those details about you know that the embalmers from around the country were all given a password uh, because there had been so much interest in this in this disaster. They were trying to keep people away from the um, surrounding area, and the embalmers were given the password Summers in order in order to get to get there. The most extraordinary section, um, Joe, and so I, I want to ask you, given that, as Simon's already revealed, this is a book you were writing for years, 
That opening section, how close is that to the opening section that you originally wrote? In other words, you know, it was, was that a, a part that you laboured over again and again and again, or, or did, that, did that come just uh, free the first time? Yeah, um, well, it, it, that section came so, so directly from the interviews that I had with the two embalmers who'd been there. It was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, obviously, but it was, the material was all there. Um, and initially, I mean, I have really gone around the houses with the, the structure for this. Um, and initially, it started actually in, in Abervan, in the middle of it all. Um, and I just dotted around times, timelines all the time, which drove people crazy, who were my readers. And it was one particular reader who said, you need to start, just start in the, at the dinner dance and just take it through in a linear way. Um, and I knew that that worked better. And it was an easier start to see William relaxed and sort of in his family context, as it were, at the dinner dance first. But the the, the visceral, difficult parts of that were all given me by these amazing embalmers who I'd spoken to. So I just channeled what they'd what they'd said, really. You must you must feel a huge sense of responsibility for for those for those pages, knowing the enormity of the work that they did and the importance of what they did. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the, there is it, it has been a burden of this book in a way that I feel enormous responsibility to to the embalmers and, of course, to the people of Abervan um, and. I would never have written a book about Abervan from the perspective of somebody from Abervan. It felt that this was a way that I could, I could look at it by coming in with a, in the point of view of a visitor, um, and and knowing sort of having quite a clear idea of what the logistics and what actually happened with that. But obviously, then um, making up my own character, William. Just a, just as a, a sidebar, can I ask you what is this like, Joe? for you when suddenly this this book which you've been working on for a while is now public property and all of a sudden we're asking you about these characters which have lived in your head for so long does it feel really weird it does feel weird and on one level it's incredibly um it, it's just a wonderful indoor you know it's just so lovely to have this these characters have have enough strength about them as it were to take root in other people's minds as well as my own so that is fantastic um but it, yeah it's a bit it is a bit daunting it's a bit scary when you've just kept something very close and it's been in your head for so long to suddenly be out there it, it is a bit scary um but there was a I had one read, a reader say just how much she enjoyed the friendships and how she wishes she could have one of the characters as her best friend and and that was that's just a lovely warm feeling but it, but yes it's both it's it's a nice warm glow and it's also a bit of terror. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think this all. I'm going to say, I'm going to say this now, Joe. You can you know you can plug your ears if you want, but I think you know I think you're going to win the Costa. That's wow. So I uh, just just. Just putting it out there now. Wow. So here, and here's the, here's the reason why specifically. All right, I think. So we've talked about the embalming, which and, and the extraordinary opening section in Abervan, but I think it's the fact that you understand and describe not just that, but you describe the mat. Now I, I should say at this point, I do not sing. I cannot sing. I have no gift for music at all, although I love it. But you seem to understand and describe the majesty of singing, of harmony. And specifically, and I've got this right, nine-part polyphony, Ooh. simultaneous lines of independent melody, which is what the Allegri Miserere is, which I want to ask you about in a moment. But you seem to understand what that is like. So can you give us a line on that? How, how do you 
How do you even begin to describe what it's like to sing the Miserere? Well, I I have sang in choirs, but I don't have a brilliant voice. I have a it's good enough, but I'm not brilliant and I'm not incredibly musical. But um, I spoke to I spoke to people who are um, I spoke to somebody who is a um, she's a choral scholar in Oxford. And I asked her about the physical feeling of singing. I remembered once being with somebody who taught singing, talking about this reverberation she gets in her skull when she hits a certain note. And I just picked up certain things. Um, and in terms of describing the, the particular piece of music, that was, it was long work. It was laborious, but, you know, just going through bar by bar, listening to it, trying to describe it. And it took a long, long time. So I'm, I'm really pleased to know that it sort of, it worked for people. Because I played it quite a lot when I was at, Scala, I mean, I still do a show for them um, once a week, but it is, an, if you've never listened to Allegra's Miserere, it's like nine minutes. It's a Psalm 150, um, or is it Psalm 50? I can't remember now. Anyway, but it, it was originally sung, I think this is right, during the Sistine Chapel in the early 1630s or yes. some something like that. It has an astonishing history. Why did you pick on that particular piece of music? Um, well, partly because... My house, the house I grew up in wasn't particularly musical, but the, this was played. My dad played it to me when I was very young and I was utterly dumbstruck by the fact that it was being sung by a, a child the same age as me at the time. Um, but also it's so immediately beautiful, isn't it? It's so accessible. Um, you don't have to like classical music or know anything about it to immediately hook into the beauty of that that sort of solo. Um, so that was quite easy. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't have a lot of pieces to choose from. But but in Cambridge, you can go and hear it performed live on, on Good Friday and on um, Ash Wednesday in Cambridge at the two different choir schools. And so I do that a lot. And I'm always I, I'm always spine tingled by it. I want to talk to you, Joe, about um, embalming and 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 how we care for for those who pass. There is a podcast that I um, that I listen to. I think Simon knows it as well, called uh, "The Rest Is History." And um, there was an episode. Of, well, I was listening to that uh, episode, one of their episodes about Neanderthals, and it happened to tie in as I was reading your book. And there are ve- right, there are very few things that we know for sure about Neanderthals. However, one of them is this, and that is that they would bury their dead. Now, we can guess as to why they did that. Maybe they were making sure that the bodies weren't going to be torn apart by hyenas or or whatever. But there is a, a pretty strong theory that they did that because they were caring for them. And I and I want to talk about that about the idea that we we are caring for something that has passed. Some, th- these are these are um, people that we love, people that are no longer with us. But the uh, the degree of respect we want to show for people who are no longer there, people who've died, and 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 obviously that's at the heart of this book. And I wondered whether that was a a theme you were you were wanting to explore within within this book, or, or whether that was a starting point for you. Yeah, I think. This again, going back to this innate sense, very strong innate sense I had as a child growing up of the undertaking business and just the enormous respect and care. And it just struck me, you know, from quite an early age that the whole premise of their, you know, their their work is that everybody matters every single body matters and and that um even if even if there isn't anyone to whom this person is precious they matter because they were a human being and and i couldn't have articulated it as a child but i definitely felt it and understood it and so it was sort of it was paying respect to them really um 
and yes, and and by implication to just um, just the way that we do care for each other and we matter to each other. I'm I'm not sure whether I should put this point on a podcast or whether I should just send you a message about it. But here we are. We're on the podcast, so I'm going to say it. Um, I wrote, <laughs> I did a a book a few few years ago called Blame, and one of the main plot uh, points was encompassed in a song by The Clash called Bank Robber. And in the book, I quoted a line from, in fact, it was the opening line from The Clash, Bank mm. Robber. And literally, literally on the day that it wasn't just when I'd sent the book finally to the editor, it was at the printers. I got a phone call saying, we haven't got permission to use the line. Oh, wow. You have to rewrite the line. And I was, I was walking down the street. You know, I wasn't at home. I had to sort of dictate an alternative line. Anyway, I say that as a preamble because you quote two lines from Leonard Cohen's Bird on the Wire, and I'm just hoping that that's all. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Have you, have you got a proof copy? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, it, from that, yes, things changed because I knew that I would have to get permissions, but I didn't know how much it was going to cost. And again, I don't know whether I should be saying this on a podcast, but for the various quotes that I had from different choir practices and different things, it, I was going to have to pay £6,600. <laughs> so wow. at that point, so what you can do, you can quote a title without having to pay. Mm. So I had to, in, in the, the choir rehearsals for the homeless choir, I had to change from, um, it was going to be um, some loves Motowny love song and I changed it to Danny Boy <laughs> because obviously I, that was out of copyright. So I basically had to look at what was out of copyright. But I did think it's worth, you know, when I, if I'm doing the rounds with this book and I get asked advice to writers, I will say, if you're going to put songs in, <laughs> beware. Mm -hmm. Because if, you know, it could have been, absolutely fundamental to the storyline as it was i could make the changes relatively easy i don't know how how hard or easy it was for you but yeah it was it was very it was very difficult because i thought the title was uh well i knew the title of the song was bank robber but i thought it was daddy in brackets daddy was a in brackets bank robber yeah. but that's not that's the open that's the opening line of the song and so therefore i had to yeah. I think the character, two characters say, well, it's about how their father stole from banks or something like that. You know, so it's slightly more uh, present. Yeah, but no, that's a, yeah, no, it's a debt. People need to know this. Uh, the advantage of Allegra's Miserere, what with it being from 1630, <laughs> is I think that's out of yeah, copyright. Exactly. Definitely. <laughs> Um, what, was, what was the toughest part of, because I know, you, you know you've taught this to, to students for a while, but having been involved in this now, Joe, on the cusp of it being published and being out there, what were, reflecting back on it, what was the toughest part of the process as far as you're concerned? Do you mean writing or do you mean getting published? But no, no, not getting published, the kind of the writing and then the editing and then getting it to this stage yes. just as it's about to be Yes, it, I mean... It, it's it's just a big piece of work because I I I, re I was confident that the material was was good enough, but I just really struggled with the structure. That for me was so difficult, and the point at which I just couldn't see the um, wood for the trees, trees for the wood. I never know which way around that is, but but I just I needed I needed help, and I needed a really good structural editor to read it through and then say you know help me. And what I really have come away with which is ironic that I needed to go through the process because I was an editor for years but you you can't do it all yourself actually it's like building a cathedral and at some point you need someone else who comes in with a fresh pair of eyes 
um, to, to help. So I would say nailing the structure is the hardest thing. And, and in my teaching, you know, nearly every class I have, most people can write a really good sentence. You know, they know how to do it. It's about whether you can build this structure and, and make it hold and take people with you and withhold certain things so they want to read on. You know, I just think it's it's mammoth. And I know, you know, every time you start a new novel, you've got to take, you've got to climb that mountain again. There's no shortcuts. So structure would be the hard thing for me. We've talked, Joe, about how um, your your early experience of of being of living literally living in a in a crematorium, living in a cemetery, and then uh, and then the amount of research that you've done for this book. And I'm I'm intrigued about one aspect of embalming, which is <clears throat> excuse me, which comes out in the book, which is the monon- monomic, uh, the pack her cotton dress clean today, please. I'm not sure whether I've got that one right, but yeah. I well, yeah. first of all, have I got it right? But second, um, was was that something that came from your research, or is that something that you just know? And, and you might need to explain what that what that what that phrase means as well. Yeah, yes. Well, the, what it means it's the it's a mnemonic to help embalmers remember once they've done the the physical bit of the embalming, so getting the blood out, putting the formaldehyde in, sewing the mouth up, all that sort of stuff. It's the last, it's the cosmetic stuff. It's just to make them look nice. And so that takes you through that. But I had, no, I had no idea about that. But what I knew, I, I had a pretty good idea of what embalmers in the 60s were doing. Um, and I had a, I, I didn't want to keep going back to these two chaps to ask them the, the, the detail. It just felt inappropriate. So I found someone else who had been an embalmer at that time. And I said, you know, what, what were their views? And I could ask all those sorts of questions to him. Oh, I never met him over email. But um, but then I knew I had to I had to have that all that detail that writers need to have this all the sensory experience of something. So I knew I put it off, but I knew I had to go and talk to embalmers, uh, present day embalmers and hopefully see an embalming, which I did. I went to a local and undertaking family and they were just fantastic. I had three sessions where we just talked and talked and talked. And he was so articulate and honest about what it's like to be an embalmer. Um, and then I said, um, and he told me about the mnemonic then. Um, but then I, eventually I said, can I actually come and watch one? And initially they said no, because, you know, what if I was an, um, a, a journalist doing an expose and so on. But eventually they let me go in and I did. And I thought, well, if I faint, I can just use it in the material. <laughs> but I didn't. I was I was OK. Um, so, yeah. So that was how I'm, I'm very indebted to, to um, him. He was great. I guess it... I mean, maybe it's important to say, Joe, I don't know, people might think, oh, I'm, I'm not sure I want to, this sounds as though it's going to be quite traumatising, this book. And obviously, if you're going to write about Abhavan, I, I guess some people will have seen it again enacted recently in The Crown, you know, when, when they go through the, the details of the horror yeah. of what happened. But I wonder if, and in fact, I should get Matt to describe the cover of the book, which is how we normally start, but I forgot to do that, that it's not... It's although that section is obviously and quite appropriately very very upsetting, as in as of course it, it needs to be. The book is not a traumatizing book. In fact, the book is a is 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 affirming. You know, it's a it's a positive book. Yes, very much so. And um, and in fact, when I when I was sending it off um, to agents, I did I I I'd heard of this. And it was quite new at the time. This idea of uplit. And and I thought, I found myself thinking, oh, shall I call it that? And then I thought, that's ridiculous. I can't call a book that deals in some measure with Abhavan and call it uplit. It just seems ridiculous. But in my 
sort of in my mind and heart, as it were, when I was writing it, it was a positive book. And I wanted there to be laughter and friendship and forgiveness and all those those things that sort of help us get through difficult things. Um, and there are certain sections. I mean, and some people, I think, you know, might want to stay in Aberfan and might not like the fact that I, I go away and we do other things. But for me, it was always about that. It was about one life. And in lives, we have we have all that range of emotion. But But no, I think there is quite a lot of positivity in it. Okay, Matt. Uh, then better late than never. Describe yeah. the cover, please. That so this is a uh, it's a very light brown. Uh, color. I'm going to say tan is the is the dominant color uh, on the on the version that I've got, and it's dominated by two things. One is the title, uh, a terrible kindness, uh, in big bold white letters across the the top half of the book, and the, the bottom half is really it's a profile of a schoolboy, and he's he's clearly standing with an autumnal uh, wind blowing against him because his scarf is is blowing behind him and we can see some autumnal leaves as well. And then in, in brown uh, lettering at the bottom, Joe Browning Row. And some very nice uh, endorsements from Joe Cannon, Rachel Joyce and Sophie Hanna, including Joe saying this is utterly and completely brilliant, which I think we would both go along with. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful cover. When you saw that, Joe, you must have been thrilled. I think I was. Um, we'd had other ideas earlier on that I hadn't been as keen on, but I was very much all the way just wanting to trust Faber because they so know what they're doing. Um, and it, it was more of a it, the cover was getting more to an idea rather than the person. And I was just so happy when they came back and said, "Actually, we've had a rethink." And it's just William, and he looks quite small. And isolated, and then on the back, there's a there's a grown up version of him, sort of looking quite similar but bigger. Um, and for me, it's all about William, so I was really pleased. I really like it. Yeah. And final question: uh, Did you did you find it easy to stop telling this story? Did you know when it was finished? Did you find it easy to step away? I'm always struck by. I remember talking to Sam Mendes about one of his movies about how he has to be dragged away. <laughs> That there's always something that he can he can see, and he said, and even when he just watched the movie through as James Bond, he he sees, still sees something that he wanted to change, and he but he actually literally has to be told to stop because it has to go. The whole process has to run. Are you, do you know when it's finished, or do you constantly did you want to go back and just tweak here? Yeah, there's two aspects to that. I could go on editing forever because that was you know I was an editor for a long time, and I like that process. I find that much easier than the initial in generating the story. So um, I think I need to be told, well, it's the point where I think, right, I'm going to send it off. I've got to stop. But I could quite happily edit something for the rest of my life. Um, but in terms of the actual story, as it was telling, I originally thought, I don't know where we stand on spoilers here, but I, I, at the end, I thought it was going to end with the birth of a child. And I did suddenly realise as I was, actually, I don't need to go that far. I can stop sooner. And there was a bit of a relief that I just suddenly saw the ending. And when I'd anticipated it would be a bit further down the line. Right. So you knew somewhere in your gut that that was Yes, it. I did. Yeah. Yeah. But I could keep fiddling uh, forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um well you must be you must be very excited because there's a lot of buzz uh, about this book and all the, I would just say I think all the buzz is entirely well found. I think it's a fantastic a book and uh, and it's utterly wonderful. Thank you. So first point is 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 congratulations and the second point is do you know where you're going next? Yes, and I've got a shaggy first draft done. Um it was recommended that it you know I signed with Faber 18 months ago and and I had good advice um from them and my agent this is a good time to work on your next one because um if when your first one's published 
you get criticised, then it can knock your confidence. Or equally, if it goes very well, you can think, I'll never do it again. So I did press on as hard as I could with the next one. And I've got quite a few months to sort of um, to refine it. But yes, so I did. And give us a clue. Is it what, what kind of, what sort of, <laughs> is, it a, is it a macabre science fiction uh, movie? Or <laughs> I don't know, what is it? Where have you um, gone? Well, um, I obviously, I don't want to say too much, but. I, no, no, no. And I, I do want to say that long term, I don't want every book I write to be about the um, the undertaking industries, but that I will in the next one at the moment that I'm working on, that we are still in that territory. Completely different story setting and everything, but still um, similar, similar career trajectories. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Joe Browning Rowe's book is A Terrible Kindness. Uh, Joe, thank you very much indeed. Uh, you can hear more with Joe because she's she's going to do our Q and A, and that'll be uh, on a separate podcast. Uh, look for it where you found this one. But for the moment, Joe Browning Rowe, thank you very thank much. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>